Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome back to the Open Deeply podcast. As we mentioned in our previous episode, before we ask guests to open deeply, we thought it would only be fair to do it ourselves. So today, my co-host, sex-positive psychotherapist, Kate Lurie, is going to tell you her story from struggle to meaning that led to who she is today. But Kate, before we get started, is there anything you want listeners to know first? Yeah, thank you, Sunny. As you know, most therapists don't disclose much beyond saying maybe their sexual orientation, their ethnicity, gender, or you know, just a few details for professional reasons. So when I decided to tell my life story for the podcast, it occurred after a lot of soul searching. I talked to some of the wisest therapists and friends I have. I even went on a plant, uh, plant medicine spiritual journey where I specifically asked about my decisions related to this podcast. That's, that's the weight of it for me. And there's a lot of vulnerability involved in doing this um, from this lens. So just know that every aspect of this bio has intent. Specifically, the intent is to break down shame related to sexual authenticity and sexual abuse. And the intent is to shine a light on U.S. cultural patterns that negatively impact our mental health. And I also need to add that although I talk about my plant medicine spiritual journey, I am not implying in any way that listeners should have a plant medicine journey. And although my experience was more than amazing, Some journeys are really incredibly emotionally hard. It's not for everyone. and It's a decision that should be made only after research, including medical and legal advisement. Well, thank you for specifying that, Kate. So on that note, I think we're ready. Let's dive in. Kate, tell us your story. All righty. Well, first, let me just say I'm a sex positive psychotherapist of 17 years who uh, serves the non-monogamous kink sex worker and LGBTQ communities. I'm also a trauma therapist and an art therapist. And in my personal life, I've had many sexual and spiritual journeys and enough hardship to help me know where my clients and my friends are coming from. Now, before I tell my story, I want to tell you what I believe. I believe we are all spiritually connected but that we are in a battle, especially in the United States, between connection and disconnection. Those who embody this cultural disconnection may present with narcissism, greed, delusional grandiosity, entitlement, or the desire to own things and bodies. You probably have noticed a few of those people, especially in the last four years. And at the end of the day, all of us are codependent with the system. Let's face it, we were born into it, but we can rebel and we can heal. And that brings me to my story. So it starts at the very beginning. My story begins in my mother's womb. That's how early I'm starting. My mom loved being pregnant. And in turn, I loved existing in this field of love, warmth, and complete connection. When you're a baby, you probably didn't know you're a baby. You were just in this, you were just love and you just experienced warmth, right? So I had no sense of I versus you, or in this case, baby versus mom during those nine months. It was just love. How do I know that? I just know. Once born, life continued in a similar fashion. 
I had it really damn good in the beginning. I was living in this modern black and white home in Oregon with azaleas out in the back, a koi pond out front, and my dad's Porsche parked in the driveway. My mom loved being a mom and was super invested in encouraging in the super creative kid that I was. I had paintings all the way up to the top of the vaulted ceiling. I'd dance in my puffy slip that looked like a tutu, and I'd put on puppet plays over the canopy bed with a bedsheet hanging from the railing. And I had tons of friends. But things drastically changed on a dime at age six. Dad left without a note while my mom and I were vacationing, vacationing in Sun Valley. He was supposedly on a kayaking trip. And soon after that, my parents got divorced. So my warm, connected, creative, and loving environment was about to be taken down abruptly. It was kind of like being picked up from in front of a warm fire and then quickly dunked into cold water. Which brings us to Alabama. Mom left all her cool Portlandia friends and we moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama to be near my mom's father. Now, on a side note, before I talk about this, it's interesting. You know, Sonny, do you remember when we were going over our life stories? This is interesting. My grandfather came from Chicago, got his education there, and then became a professor at the University of Alabama. And his wife had scarlet fever. And your grandfather, it was the same thing. Same thing with your grandmother. Chicago to Alabama, professor, grandmother had scarlet fever. Just blows my mind. Crazy pants. Just that, I don't yeah. know, personally, Sunny, I, I, I'm very science-based, but I also believe in woo. And mm-hmm. I, I believe when there's synchronicity like that, you're on the right track. And when that happened, I was just like, yes, this podcast with Sunny is supposed to happen. Okay, yes. this is just a sidebar, but I had to say that at this <laughs> point. Okay, so the Lurie family, they weren't Southerners. You know, Grandpa came down from Canada Chicago, and eventually ran the whole top floor of the educational psych department at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. So mom began life as a single woman in the deep South, and I began my struggle to exist in a place that had nothing to do with who I was. We had a massive drop in our standard of living, and I became incredibly shy. But I'll have to say, I feel that I was supposed to go to Tuscaloosa. It shaped me. I was supposed to go there to learn, but God knows it wasn't fun for a kid like me. Between the age of six and 32, I was hit with relentless cultural pressures to be a shadow of myself. But that same pressure built my resilience and a fiery part of my nature. And this experience started right out of the gate in elementary school. But first, I'm going to start one of five sidebars that I will juxtapose elements of what I'll call dominator culture to my personal experience. Here it goes. As you know, many of us have been conditioned to believe that certain ethnicities are less than, which has allowed greedy leaders with a wish to dominate to commodify black and brown people leading to systemic racism. As a result, we have become disconnected from loving and learning from our fellow humans. Now, this dynamic began to impact me by age seven, obstructing my ability to have close black and brown friends. I wouldn't fully take my power back regarding this, forming incredibly powerful and life-changing relationships with friends that were black and brown until my late 40s. But it was the 70s in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Really, I'll have to say, I'm not sure that much has changed since then. Anyhow, 
These teachings that I learned from Tuscaloosa showed up in various ways. For instance, regarding social justice. When I was in my home, my mom was always teaching me about civil rights. She told me about the Southern Poverty Law Center. But as soon as I walked out of my door, like for instance, we ran into KKK rallies twice, just turning a corner and there it was. Or in high school, I heard the N-word on the regular. So that was an ongoing lesson that really grooved in my social justice nature. Also, from the time I was in elementary school, I was really being trained to be a therapist going back that far. If I came home from school and told my mom I was being bullied, not only would she stop what she was doing and sit down on the sofa for as long as it as need be to empathize with me, but she'd also teach me what made a bully. So she was teaching me to have empathy for myself and process my feelings and also to have empathy and understanding for people who behaved badly or behaved in a way that I didn't understand. And then my future sex therapist side was being built really young. At age six, I got my first sex ed book called Where Did I Come From? And the the main characters, the wife and and uh, husband, were like these little chubby, cute car- cartoon characters. And they described being sex being like being tickled with a feather. And then as I got older, I got age-appropriate sex ed books. So by the time I was in the fifth grade, none of the other kids knew this stuff. So I became kind of like the resident Dr. Ruth at the lunchroom table. And also in the fifth grade, I was one of the only girls who refused to wear a training bra. My mom and I just thought it was silly. You know, I didn't have boobs really, you know, but that (laughs) that made me kind of stand out. And it was kind of foreshadowing of the sex positive rebel that I would become. Now, I coped with this whole environment that didn't fit in with who I was in in really two ways. Back then, we were religious. So, you know, my mom would read me Bible stories on the top of a mountaintop in a state park. And and also, creativity got me through. I wasn't as creative as I was in Oregon, but I'd, I'd do things like draw these cute little friendly monsters and I'd sell them to kids for 10 cents. All right. So let's move on to high school and middle school. But here is Dominator's cultural sidebar number two. As you know, going way back, sexual shame has been instilled in society by certain religious organizations who desire to control the hearts and minds of others. In my private practice, what I've noticed is that those with deep sexual shame don't trust themselves to make their own decisions in life. And this goes even further than just decisions about their sexual life. Once we are disconnected from our own intuition, we are forced to look to external guidance, which makes us vulnerable to organizations that wish to dominate the ethical thinking of humanity. Now back to my story. I had an early knowing that sex positivity and sexual abuse are opposite sides of the same coin, um, which led to my career as a sex positive trauma therapist. For instance, In high school, I was slut-shamed when I was still a virgin, just because I dressed kind of gothy like a rocker chick. And I rebelled about, you know, against the slut-shaming, which, of course, led to more slut-shaming. I was slow to let this sex-shaming culture impact me, but that comes later, unfortunately. And I had my own sexual abuse history. There was a boy that had access to me when I went to visit my father in Oregon. And there was a little bit of sexual abuse that happened in Alabama, But frankly, I've always felt that I had just enough sexual abuse to understand my clients who have much worse sexual abuse histories than I do. 
It's just enough to feel it in my bones, but not so much that I get triggered and dysregulated. And during that time, I became dear friends with a gal named Jennifer. Now, Jennifer lost her mom in a car accident that she was in. She watched her mom die. And after that death, her dad started to sexually abuse her. She'd even get him to sign, you know, like she'd write a little note, dad agrees not to do X, Y, and Z. And he'd sign it. She'd bury it in the garden to make sure it's just stayed forever in a little plastic container. But then he would keep doing the same thing. And when she told everybody about it at school, no one believed her. And that really set in motion that deep social justice focus I have about, you know, about sexual abuse, but also being able to speak your sexual authentic truth, whether it's beautiful or dreadful, like in this case. So I continued to cope with this environment with art and spirituality. But by this time, my spiritual focus had switched to reading books like Handbook to Higher Consciousness, <laughs> which you can imagine <laughs> is a little strange for a kid in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, but that was me. So moving on to college. When I went to college, things got better. There was more sexual freedom, more art, more freedom to be me. But first, let's talk about Dominator sidebar number three. As you know, going way back, certain businesses and political systems instill the idea that greed is good and that art is expendable. This greed-driven system came to dominate our very minds, shaping what we prioritize. Thus, we have become disconnected from art, we've cut art from our school curriculums, and most brilliant artists can't pay rent. So although art continued to be my saving grace, I didn't pursue art as a career because I knew I'd never get out of Alabama if I did. I mean, maybe, but it would have been way harder. And my cultural rebellious nature continued to give me more life lessons about who I would become. So the racial issues got driven down deeper because I, you know, and this is something you didn't do in, let's see, I think this was maybe 1990 or 89, I dated a black man in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He was the backup quarterback for the Crimson Tide. So in Tuscaloosa, he was famous. But still, it's still not okay, no matter how famous a black man is at, at that time and in a lot of ways still. And I experienced racism from both black and white people. And so it gave me a deep felt sense of what starting to understand what racism is about um, you know, in the early stages, I was only like around 20 years old. So it was my understanding was still in its infancy, but it was still driven home more than I think a lot of kids that age or young adults. And also I had my first male, male, female threesome at age 20 in New Orleans with two gorgeous goth guys, age 18 and 22. I'd have to say they were probably my first male muses. I, I've had many male muses over the course of my life. I think because they were just so much more charismatic, handsome, creative, amazing than any of the, the guys that I had access to in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, those two New Orleans boys, they kind of symbolized that I was about to get out and that things were about to get better. And there was a point in that threesome where they got me to stand on top of the bed and turn around and they looked at me and they just said, she's perfect. And in that moment, I think it was a bit like a metaphor that not only did I have a better life, but coming, you know, in the near future, but that better life wanted me back. And that leads to what happens next. At age 22, 
my dad passed away. I wasn't close with my father. And when he passed away, although he was an orthodontist, he had a 10 acre farm. And on that farm, he had llamas. Now llamas, he bred like Arabian horses. He had 80 of them approximately. And my stepmother, somehow her name was on the llamas. And so I inherited llama money, which allowed me to get out of Alabama. And that takes us to Colorado. So I'm finally free of Alabama. I moved to Colorado with my boyfriend at the time. And I got my first master's degree. I got a master's in business administration. Now you're probably like, what? You haven't mentioned an interest in business at all. And you're right. Basically, I just didn't want to struggle like my single mom did. And so I got an MBA thinking that that would be a practical way to make sure I never struggled. So, and I, my mom always taught me how to be kind, but she wasn't really good at teaching me adulting. So I had, I made some mistakes in the beginning. So while that was going on, getting school, uh, going to school to be uh, a business person and then being in the business world, I was dating Derek. I was with him for 11 years. He was uh, another hot goth guy. He was gorgeous with long black hair. He looks super artistic, wild and carefree, but in a lot of ways, not so much. There was a lot of good in the relationship. We loved books and comics and hiking and movies. We did everything. We were super sexually attracted to each other, but he was very critical when it came to sex shaming. Like for instance, I remember when we were first together, we hadn't even gone to Colorado yet. We were in Tuscaloosa. And one night he said, I want you to admit, Kate, that any sexual partner you had before me that you did not love was bad and wrong. And a huge argument ensued, but he was tenacious and relentless. And I finally agreed. We fell asleep and I woke up the next day and told him, I just told you that to get, get you off my back. I don't believe that. But that's the kind of thing that went on, which brings me to dominator cultural sidebar number four. As you know, in much of the world, we have been conditioned to believe that women are less than. And since emotion has been linked to women, emotional intelligence has been demeaned, and we are hyper-reliant on logic and reason. Consequently, for many of us, we reject the wisdom of the remaining two-thirds of our internal compass, emotion and body sensations. I believe a well-balanced internal compass gives us equal respect to logic, emotion, and body sensations. Consequently, often our internal guiding compass is off course. Mm-hmm. And this affected me for much of my life. At age 23, and for most of my relationship with Derek, I had some internalized misogyny that showed up as being hyperlogical, not having female friends, being too easily, uh, I believe a, a male voice way too easily, and not knowing how to assert myself strongly enough against a strong male personality such as Derek. Furthermore, I was free from Alabama geographically, but I was not free from my experience of the culture psychologically. So I was disconnected in a lot of different ways. I was disconnected from my creativity, beyond reading comic books. I was disconnected from my spirituality. Uh, I was disconnected in my se- from my sexuality, although we were super sexually attracted to each other and we had sex, you know, but who knows who I would have been if not for all the sex shaming. So things began to crumble at about year 10. I was off my true path. I hated my job. I was lonely and angry. I had tried to change my career, but just 
couldn't do it. And, you know, I, lo- I find that when you're off your true course, it's, it's really hard to create change. It's like you're in this rut. So I was in a really dark emotional place. And it was at that point I did something that I am not proud of. And I had an affair with a married man. And I hurt a lot of people. And to this day, that's the point in my life that I like myself the very least. So I am not proud of it in any way. And I'm still sorry for the people that I hurt. But I will say that the silver lining for me, at least in that affair, was it kind of gave me a vitamin booster shot because I, at the time, was just like this wilted flower, just so just no mojo at all, just like so depleted. Another thing that happened, don't laugh, but I watched the movie Fight Club. (laughs) Fight Club changed my life. (laughs) I watched the Edward Norton character who would just buy Ikea furniture to just get a dopamine hit because his life had just no freaking meaning. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm the Edward Norton character. And I flashed back to my physics teacher in high school saying, you guys are the cream of the crop. And I thought, this is not what she was talking about. Meanwhile, Derek was watching me mope around. I was doing a ton of artwork at that point in time because I tend to do a lot of artwork when I'm miserable. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so he said, look at you, Kate, you're reading a book on bipolars for fun and you're doing a ton of art. Why don't you go be an art therapist? Now I looked into art therapy 10 years ago and it was a nothing of a profession, but I thought, what the hell? Look, and it had exploded, you know? So at that point, that is the beginning of me making this big shift. So what happened, I'm going to speed you know, forward a little bit, but I ended up completely taking down my life and pulling up a new life. I ended an 11-year relationship. I quit my job. I moved out of Colorado. I just took everything down, packed up my little red Paseo, and that ends what I'll call the pressurized and restricted years from age 6 to 33. And so begins what I will call the released into the wild years <laughs> from age 34 to 42, which of course has to begin where? Los Angeles. I'm finally on my true path. And for me, once I got on my true path, life went into hyperdrive and connections be- began to happen left, right, and center after feeling so disconnected for so long. I went into an art therapy master's program in Los Angeles. All of a sudden, I felt connected to feminine energy and valuing the feminine. I felt connected to progressive culture again, like I did in Oregon. I felt connected to art again, like when I was a little girl. I felt connected to nurturing protective energy, like I felt when I was small. And then I met Richard. And in Richard, I met him in 2003. And he was a major male muse in my life, maybe the biggest one. But he is not what you would call that kind, soothing male muse. More like being tied to the tail of a a bull and and dragged through a china shop. More like a kundalini awakening on feet. More like that. (laughs) (laughs) So, but he was my adventure buddy. And so with him, all of a sudden I had more connections. I felt connected to sexual freedom again. I felt connected to adventure again. And because he was an artist, I felt connected to art again. I felt alive, excited, lit up, in love, all of these things. Now, part of the way Richard is wired as a a male muse, like I said, I gave you the analogies, is that he's pushy. So every characteristic has a good and bad side. Like if you think about someone who's extroverted, 
positive side, life of the party, negative side, doesn't know when to shut the hell up. So his pushiness is like that. The good side is all the stuff that I said about him being amused. The negative side is sometimes, uh, a lot of times, he, he could really just tenaciously push me towards things. And that became a challenge in our relationship. So the next thing that happened very quickly was we became swingers. Now, the way that happened was one day I came home from, you know, I was in school to be a therapist. I was working three jobs. I loved what I was doing, but it was stressful. I come home after a hard day to see him with a gleam in his eye seated in front of his computer, a woman on the screen with her punani pussy poontang proudly displayed. And he's just looking at me with a Cheshire cat grin. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening next? And (laughs) it's (laughs) it's at that point where he says, you know, Kate, We've both cheated in the past. I love you so much. I don't want to cheat on you. I, you know, and he mentioned he had talked to a very famous sex educator. Um, I'm not going to mention her name because I'm not sure if she'd want to be mentioned. And he had said to her, I don't want to cheat on Kate. I love her so much. I don't know what to do. And she said, Why don't you be swingers? Now, when he presented this idea to me at that point back in 2003, the only you know, remember, I grew up in Alabama, <laughs> not LA. Mm. So the only idea I have had of it was like these crappy documentaries that I had seen, you know, with that usually involved an orange van with green carpet, a guy with a gold chain and some woman <laughs> that looked downtrodden in the back of the van, you know, like, was, you know, saying, come in, little girl, you know, just like, uh, you know, just just I just had creepy ideas in my head. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was so far from the truth, right? And he said, you know, Kate, we don't have to do anything we don't want to. Let's just meet some people. You come first. If, you know, our relationship comes first, let's just explore and have fun. So that's what we did. We just like go to dinner with people, that kind of thing. But really the, the first year was a bit of a train wreck. We weren't meeting people that were our tribe and it was, it was a bit frustrating. So finally I said to him, I'm like, you know, Richard, why don't we go, to a bar that's like a swinger takeover, I think that'll be better. And he's like, why, why is that going to be better than just doing it online? And at that point, I was pretty confident about my own sexual ability to attract folks and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know, I just think it'll be better. (laughs) And so he agrees. And we go to this party, we walk in and immediately all the bullshit I had in my head, stereotypes about swingers just melted away. Because I walk in and the women were gorgeous. They were confident. They were kind of ruling the school. The men were like very much, you know, they were classy, well-dressed, kind of sitting back, letting women kind of create the energy. And I was like, wow, this Mm -hmm. is so much different than what I had in my head. And it's about that time that Richard pointed out this couple that had like kind of superstar quality. And he's like, that's the kind of couple that I wish we could meet. And so Richard goes to the bathroom. When he comes out, I'm dancing with the wifey around a pole. (laughs) 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 and uh so richard's like trying to refrain from having a mouth drop next thing you know we're going home with this we're following this couple home now richard had this joke that he would tell if he saw somebody that looked a little bit like a celebrity but wasn't it's just this dumb thing you do like if he saw somebody and he was like oh look it's robert de niro when it was so not robert de niro Mm -hmm. so he did the same thing he you know he goes I'm not going to say who this movie star was, but let's just call him Batman. So we get in the car, we're following this couple home and he's like, we're about to go home with Batman. 
And I'm like, Richard, you realize that is Batman. And he's like, what? And I'm like, did you notice that men were buying him drinks? And I don't think that would happen at this kind of party. And he's like, oh, shit, we're going home with Batman. <laughs> and so it was <laughs> so it was after that that basically Batman changed and his wife changed our whole world. They got us connected to a better website. All of a sudden we're going to fancy parties and mini mansions with like really amazing, dynamic, gorgeous people. Everything changed. And so so for a long period of time, Richard and I just were having a blast and we started having our own parties and we were kind of like the general patent of swinger parties, you know, like we would very carefully organize who went. It was super safe, sane and consensual. Just the just gorgeous, amazing, charming people went. Not to say that we didn't struggle in the beginning. We had a lot of fights because Richard and I are both like pretty strong willed people. But towards the end of that journey that first chapter of our relationship, we got to a point where it was down to a science and it was around then that he proposed. We had this amazing marriage and I was just like, this is epic. But I was married to Richard. So very shortly after getting married, he basically came up to me and he said, I'm going to start something called Dirty Dolly Photography. Denise is going to be my makeup artist. She's also going to be my lover. I'm going to be gone for about half the year. Swinging is no longer going to work as much. We should probably be poly because I'm going to be gone half the year probably and you should get a lover. And I was like, what, what, what? (laughs) Mm. And so you can imagine a lot of fights and struggles ensued. And I will have to say that that was probably the beginning of the end. Now, when I say that that was the beginning of the end, it was not because we were non-monogamous. It was because of difficulties that he and I had with communicating. Now, I'm not going to speak that much about his responsibility in it because he's not here to defend himself. So I'm going to mostly talk about my responsibility in it. I'll have to say now in that relationship, I had analyzed my husband every which way regarding his childhood, his trauma, his temperament. But even though, you know, like I said, I had a lot of psychological awareness going all the way back to elementary school. There were certain things that I only had semi-awareness of that are super clear to me now. For instance, one, I had this huge value on freedom and independence. And I'll I'll have to say that non-monogamous people, if you're familiar with the five love languages, I would say they have a six love language, which is probably something like carefree, carefree, fun, freedom and adventure. And so because I had this high value on freedom and independence, I'd rather say yes and let him do what he wanted, then view myself as controlling or stopping him from having his freedom. Mm-hmm. Also, I was still in that place where I had a hyper-reliance on logic. So any ask that he had that caused a little knife drop in my gut, I didn't even, that got shoved down so quick because I was in my head so much. And then on Richard's side, he had such an intense family when he, he had a hard childhood. So if I was upset at a, what I regard a seven or eight, like super upset because of his felt experience in his childhood, my seven or eight would have been a three or a four in his family. So there was a lot of times where I was super upset that he just didn't get it. Mm. Yeah. So despite being way more assertive than most, probably 95% of the women, a lot of times it just didn't re- register. So all this led me to overwhelming myself on the regular without full awareness. But I'll have to say we did have a ton of fun too. 
Richard's main person, as I said, was Denise and they were full tilt poly. He had some other relationships too, but she was the main person. And I mainly dated men who were fun sexually, but not somebody I'd fall for, at least in the beginning. For instance, when I discovered that I was kinky, now I had gone to kinky parties and stuff like that, but I had belly danced with a bunch of uh, tribal belly dancers who turned out to be a group of subby BDSM girls. Like I had all these experiences, Mm -hmm. but it never just clicked until the movie star, the same one I mentioned previously, came into my life again, started seeing him, and I discovered that I could be subby. Now you might ask yourself, why him? I'd have to say because other people had seem a little bit trite in their kinkiness. And he had this mm-hmm. organic kinkiness. It felt natural. He had this wholesome quality to him. I mean, hell, he was like super disarming. Hell, he was on the cover of my Teen Beat magazines when I was a kid, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was, it was uh, there wasn't, you know, it, it just organically happened. And then the second thing that happened regarding kink was I was dating this uh, Vegas male erotic dancer. And most of our relationship was through video and tech. And I, I started just telling him stories where he would be in the sub role and he just loved it. He loved my creativity. And that's when I discovered that the amount of creativity that comes with being in the Dom role. And I was just like, wow, this is super fun. And I get to be so creative. So that's when I discovered that I love being a dominant as well. Mm-hmm. So during this time, we were also still having parties and sometimes porn performers would come to our parties. And that's when I discovered that I really loved porn performers. Like they're just super warm and funny and charming. And that's kind of foreshadowing for the fact that I ended up being, you know, a sex positive psychotherapist with a lot of porn, you know, high end escorts and porn performers in my private practice. Now, while all of this was going on, I was working at a hospital mental health clinic from 2005 until 2011. I was working with schizophrenics, schizoaffectives, folks with DID, PTSD. I was the art therapist there. I did event planning. And during that time, when I first got there, it was very dismal. The previous art therapist would have put all the trauma art on the walls. It was just very gray and downtrodden. And I started putting art that was like, I'd get them to make like Jackson Pollock type art where we would sling sling paint and I'd do group murals where they would put images of hope and like any other trauma art, we still did that, but we kept those in separate private files. And then I found out the other therapists there, the female therapist wanted to help me. And so we started doing dances every month. We started doing talent shows and the patients who before could not get along outside of the program, they started hanging out with each other. So they started smiling and hugging each other. And it's at that point that I got connected to community in a way that I had not been connected to since I was a little tiny girl in Oregon. And I realized that you can, it is possible to create a utopia. Maybe it's small, Mm. but you can create a utopia. And that was a new form of connection for me. Another thing that happened during that time was I was taking some seminars on somatic experiencing, somatic meaning body-based. And so I became more aware of my body um, and I started to track my body more. And I started to realize that between the overwhelm of my husband and the overwhelm of the hospital, you know, I loved my job at the hospital, but it was intense. 
that I was spending a lot of my time kind of numbed out. I wasn't tracking my body. And it was about that time as I realized, once I started to track my body, I realized how overwhelmed I was at times. And I realized at that point uh, that I was what I would call a sensitive overgiver. Now you might say, mm. do you mean codependent? Not really. So I just want to make a note. Codependency wasn't taught in my master's program. And then when I was at the hospital, it wasn't brought up because we were doing groups. We weren't working with couples. So although I had heard the term codependent, I, I pretty much associated it with women who date, you know, people that dated alcoholics. It just wasn't on my radar. So I, I asked about 10 people in my practice to define codependent and I got 10 different answers. So I'm like, okay, I don't want to use this word. So I came up with the term overgiver. And I mean that specifically as someone who overextends themselves emotionally. So I'm not some talking about somebody who cooks a lot or cleans a lot in terms of overgiving. I'm talking about specifically overextending yourself emotionally. So that leads me to my second wave of hyperdrive growth and empowerment, which wouldn't have occurred if I wasn't reconnecting in all the ways that mattered previously. And I'll call it my returning to whole years, age 43 to, to now and 52 now. So I started really getting connected with my personal power. I got licensed in 2011, started my private practice, started doing public speaking, BuzzFeed, Playboy, Playboy Radio, UCLA. I also started to become more emotionally connect, connected to myself. I started to practice vulnerability with friends. I remember at, you know, around getting close to October of 2015, when I asked for a divorce, I, I was having breakfast with my friend Heather and I was just crying, telling her that I was about to ask for a divorce. And there was people around watching me cry. That is not something that tough chick Kate of the past would have done. But it was then that I realized that that's how you really build amazing deep friendships. And so I started practicing vulnerability. I started to realize how powerful it is. I continued to track my body and then I asked for a divorce in October 2015. He moved out May of 2016, divorce final March of 2017. And I continued my pro process to ask how this overgiver, overtaker dynamic had disconnected us. You know, and I thought to myself, what, what's in it for me? Like, why, you know, why am I an overgiver? And I thought, well, I got to play the hero in my own mind, whether that's true or not. <laughs> And since my focus was outward, I didn't have to face my own shit. You know, I, and I kept on hearing people say, well, codependents don't love themselves. And I was like, what? I, I know I'm super confident. I love myself. What is what the hell does that mean? But then I realized that feeling the feeling of self-love and self-care, like eating right, doing yoga, or feeling confident is just half of the, the equation. The second half of love of self-love involves self-care boundaries. And I'll give you an analogy. Imagine there's this little, this little child and the parents of this child hug this child, you know, tell this child that the child is amazing, read stories to the child. And the child has this great big front lawn with all these toys, but the parents don't give any kind of boundaries. And so there's no fence in front of the lawn. So one day the kid runs out and gets smacked by a car. Okay, mm -hmm. now that's that's gruesome, but this is kind of how people who are overgivers are. They may at best love themselves and feel confident, but there's no 
boundaries to protect themselves from being harmed by others. And so mm. this was something I started to, I started to realize that I needed to work on my boundaries and that I needed to get over this idea that anytime I set a boundary, it meant I was controlling, which is bullshit. I mean, sometimes it can mean that we have to look at ourselves, but when you set a boundary, it does not necessarily mean that you're being controlling, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and then I began to, as I understood it, I saw how this overgiver, overtaker dynamic in the United States doesn't just show up on the personal level. It shows up on the relational level and it shows up on the cultural level. You know, when you look at some of these narcissistic world leaders that are overtaking from the underprivileged, mm -hmm. you know, and while all these epiphanies were happening, I was also reconnecting to the spiritual and here is my fifth and final dominator culture sidebar. Many of us have been made to believe that love and a, a reverence for nature is pagan or evil and that nature is here to serve man. This is part of the reason that we've destroyed, practically destroyed this poor world. Once severed from the greatest teacher of all, Mother Nature, we needed a new source to guide us, which allowed certain religious groups to better control us. Now, I have to note, I am not saying that all religion is bad. Many religious teachings have been powerful for so many people and helped them survive. For me, Buddhism has been a huge blessing. So please don't hear me wrong, but there has been certain religious groups that have puppeteered people in a way that has not served them. Mm -hmm. So personally, I didn't even realize how disconnected I was from nature and the spiritual guidance that comes with a connection to nature until, until I began my spiritual journeys, which started out with breathwork meditations, both holotropic and pranayama, where um, not everybody sees visions, but for me, I see visions when I do those kind of breathwork meditations. And the first mm -hmm. thing that came to me was a blue bear, and he had this benevolent masculine energy. And when he came to me, it healed any remaining wounds that came from my dad leaving me when I was a little girl at age six. I still hold my blue bear in my heart. Um, and my connection to nature started coming back because all my spirit guides were animal and nature based. The next thing that happened with my spiritual journey is in 2018, I got cancer. And for two and a half months, I didn't know the stage of the cancer. So when you don't know the stage of your cancer, you don't know if you're dying. It's like your mortality is like one inch in front of your face going, hi, how you doing? You know, mm. and that changes a person. Um, I was having a real hard time during that point. I read a book called uh, Book of Secrets by Deepak Chopra, and he believes that we are bigger than our body and that we are con connected to this universal whole that's much bigger. Um, and he talked about how each individual person should be almost like a white blood cell that is fighting for the grander whole of the universe. And that switch in focus helped me cope with cancer, but it continued to change how I just meet the world. The next thing that happened was, um, I've done a couple of plant medicine journeys. And from those journeys, I'll, I'll tell you a few things that have happened. I'm no longer afraid of death in the same way. That's not to say that if somebody came into my house with a pointing a gun at me, I wouldn't be scared or, you know, I'd certainly be scared of pain, but I'm just saying that 
after the things that I've experienced and the thing, and I've heard people's stories and bazillion stories, um, both in and out of my practice, people have told me their stories with plant medicine and they're very similar. I feel like we, there's things we don't understand and there's, and I'm not really scared of what happens after you pass anymore. Also, my purpose in life became super clear. And many of my past attachment injuries with men were healed. They're just not a thing anymore. And I connected to a sense of love that's way beyond our normal conception of love. And once you're connected to that, it's another thing along with not being afraid of death that makes you pretty fearless, especially when it comes to social justice efforts. So again, I'm not suggesting that anyone else try plant medicine that's a personal choice and everyone's different. Not everybody, you know, you have to make sure again that you check in on medical and legal, legal issues that you make sure that it's right for you. But with that said, there was two more pieces to my spiritual journey. There was a sexual piece. I started doing a lot of Tantra and I'll have to say that I believe that when you are really spiritually connected with, to someone that there's something that you can achieve that I'll just call God sex, which feels like the humans are kind of pushed to the side and it almost feels like the universe having sex with itself. And I'll tell you what, mm. I think you can tell by this point in the journey that I've had a lot of experiences. So all I'm saying is there's no end to our capabilities regarding where we can go sexually. And a lot of it has to do with dropping down into a spiritual intimate place to have the most profound experience. So you might ask, why was my sexual journey with all forms of non-monogamy the preamble to my spiritual journey? I have to say that my sexual journey, I think, happened due to my openness. You know, I was open to life experiences. I was open to learn and grow. And I believe it happened first because the sexual journey was more accessible to me Despite all the sexual shame that our culture impo imposes, the impact of dominator culture to keep us from seeing the kind of spiritual journey I had as a possibility just blocked it until my 40s from, from me even considering it. And it delayed it until, I mean, it really kind of started in my 30s, but really in my 40s. And then the last part of my spiritual journey, and I'll say this is 50% of my spiritual journey, which is an anti-racism journey, an anti-racism deep dive. I dated a guy named Pierre, who's still a dear, dear friend, back in 2017, early 2017, really started talking to him in 2016. Super, you know, Ivy League edu educated, compassionate, powerful black man who's to this day working to make the world better. And he started to say, watch this, read this. And after a while, I just went off on my own. I'd go and watch I Am Not Your Negro by myself, like all of this stuff. At first, I thought I was learning about, about Black people in the United States, Jamaica, and parts of Africa. But after a while, I realized I was learning about white people. And after a while, I learned I was learning about myself. And I mm. wouldn't say that my spiritual journey would have been complete. Like I said, I feel like this is 50% of it. And especially at the time of this taping, just yesterday was the attempt, the attempted coup on the Capitol, the White House. Yeah. And if you 
don't feel the importance of connecting to an anti-racist journey as a spiritual journey, then I, I don't know what would wake you up if, if yesterday's events didn't wake you up to that. It's so important. It's bigger than just being a good human. It, it is a spiritual journey that will change you. You know, I, I was talking to a friend about this and she was saying, she's much younger than me. And she was like saying, I, I'm scared what I'll lose. Now she loves her parents. She's got, her parents are wonderful in many ways. Like they're kind of these hippie parents that have provided, you know, that did fun things with her and have totally had her back. But crazy making part, they voted for Trump. So I said to her, I said, I get why you get scared. You know that there's some heartbreak that might be involved in you really connecting to all this. And she's like, yes. And I said, but the thing is, what you gain from this journey, you, you may fear losing, losing some money or status if there was justice in the United States. But what you gain in terms of feeling more connected and, and spiritually connected is way greater. It's way better. Anyway, I finally feel less codependent with dominator culture, not to mention in my relationships and all the disconnecting forces that come with it on the cultural, relational and personal level. Now, racism, sexism and sexual shame obviously are still rampant, but my feelings of deep connection within me they can't be taken from me, no matter what you do, which leads to my intention for my future work. I just wrote a book on conscious, compassionate, connected non-monogamy. And I just want to hear you here. So when I went in, you know, and told you all about non-monogamy and switched to this spiritual journey, please don't hear that in any way I am saying, you know, saying, you know, I, I do not... Uh, regret anything that I've done with non-monogamy. I still regard myself as non-monogamous. So I just wanted to make that clear that just because I told you the journey of my sexual journey and then a spiritual journey, that does not mean that I'm negating the sexual journey that I had, you know, and in my book on conscious, compassionate non-monogamy, both of those journeys are dovetailed together in the sense that I think with non-monogamy and in monogamy, there's all these problems that we have that are not things that have to happen. If we became more compassionate, if we became more conscious, both our monogamous and non-monogamous relationships could be so much better. Mm -hmm. And then I'll have to say the other part is the other part of my uh, vision going forward is this podcast. And each guest will tell their tale how they want to. They may tell their tale vastly different than the way I did, but I predict that each life story in some way will be a story of breaking free from the negative impact of dominator culture and finding one's truth and meaning on the other side of that struggle. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Thank you. You know, as I was listening to you talk, you know, there was, I was just so thankful to hear that awakening and to hear in one respect how different maybe some of the fine details of your life might be to mine or to other people, but at the same time, how similar those awakenings are. And to, to hear you talk about codependence versus being an overgiver. Thank you. 
because you know I'm not a, men a mental health professional, but I'm pretty proficient in those sorts of things, especially how it relates to sexuality and relationships. And I always never really understood like codependent, like there was just something that didn't quite fit. So thank you for that. For me, that was super validating. And, and I'm really looking forward to through the course of this podcast, how your story, my stories, our guest stories, our listeners' stories, as they're listening to these stories and they're they're telling their own stories to themselves in their heads or telling their friends how this is going to illuminate, you know, those larger systems that we talk about, the cultural and societal influences of dominator culture and all of these things. So uh, thank you for sharing. And my brain now is just lighting up and tingling with all the possibilities. So thank you, Kate. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, when I watch people talk, they, they'll talk about patriarchy. And then a lot of times we lose all the men in the, in the room, or we talk about Black Lives Matter. And, you know, it's like all these, these things, it seems like we end up losing a group of people in the conversation. So and I'm like, but all this bridges together. I'm not doing a pain comparison. Obviously, some people have way more pain in their life than others. But that's when I started to think about this term dominator culture. I started to think about how systemic all these things are. And you and I started talking about it on, you know, just in conversations about whether you're talking about systemic racism, systemic sexism, systemic sexual shame, you know, and where it starts in our culture with, uh, you know, a lot of times the roots are, are with organization, religious organizations or political orga organizations that are trying to control in some way. And then there's this impact that comes on the cultural level all the way down to the relationship level, all the way down to the individual level. So, yeah, I think uh, all of these stories, we're going to start to see how these stories overlap and interweave. And I, I feel like there's just going to be my hope is that this podcast will help us all come together and feel closer. Thank you so much, Kate, for reiterating those larger systems that really affect your story, my story, our guest stories, everybody's stories. And we are going to be, before we move on to other guests' stories, we're going to be dedicating an entire episode to picking apart those systems and those common themes and currents that do run through all of our stories. So on that note, thank you again, Kate. Thank you, listeners. And we'll join you next time for more Opening Deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.